Uh, today we're going to be reading from Luke 10. So if you have your own Bibles or you would like to read off the Bible on your phone, feel free. If not, don't worry because the words will be on the screen behind me. But before we do that, I'm so glad that you're here. Um, but I just want to invite you to be present. Um, so often, part of us is here and part of us is elsewhere. Um, maybe you're carrying stuff um, that feels heavy from the previous week. Uh, maybe you're worried about something, you have been hurt or you're stressed. Uh, maybe you're just thinking about what you're doing this afternoon. Or you could be looking into the future. You could be thinking about all the work that you have to do um, in the week to come. And I totally get that. We're human. I'm not telling you off for that at all. I am the same. But in reality, there's so little that you're going to be able to do about that practically in the next 20 or so minutes. Um, and I don't know what's going on, but God does, um, because we have a God who sees, um, who sees us right where we are right now, and a God who can minister to our circumstances and our situation in a way that nothing else can. So even if you don't take anything else in, in the next 20 minutes, that's totally okay. I just want to invite you um, to be present and bring yourself uh, and all of yourself before God. So we're reading from Luke 10. Um, verses 38 to 42, at the home of Martha and Mary. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet, listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered. You're worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. Dave has said already, but part of Central uh, and part of its vision is to join with God and others in the transformation of the city as disciples who make disciples. So part of this is the transformation of the city. But this isn't just any city. Sounds a bit like a Marks and Spencer's advert. Um, there's lots of things that make this city this city. Um, I was thinking about this and I thought about the alarming amount of Cafe Nero's that we have in the city centre. I was really impressed by this story because once I told my sister I would meet her at the Cafe Nero across from City Hall and we were both on the phone to each other for like 10 minutes being like, no, I'm at the Cafe Nero across from City Hall. So I was really impressed by this story. But Cafe Nero's, not that big an issue. Um, but we have our own sense of humour. We have um, lots of great places to eat. We have um, a really interesting history. Um, but one thing that makes Belfast Belfast is the fact that it's a student city. Um, and Central is a community that's open to everybody. We have people um, at different stages of life and different backgrounds and different occupations. But as Dave said, um, we're at the start of an academic year and we thought there might be some students here today. Um, so I am speaking because I am a student. Um, and quite alarmingly, I am in my seventh year of university. Um, and I was thinking about this recently. I have spent the same amount of time at university than I have at primary school and secondary school. 
And some people take a photograph of their child on their first and last day of primary school and secondary school. That is something my mother does not want on her mantelpiece, a picture of me on the first and last day of my PhD. It'd be like a still from the opening scene and closing scene of an apocalyptic film, right? Grey face, really bad eye bags, just shaking uncontrollably from the amount of coffee that I have drunk. But other than a coffee dependency, um, I have hopefully developed other things over the past seven years. And I was thinking, what advice can I share today? And then I thought, probably none. But I thought a better question would be, what do I wish I had have known seven years ago? And I thought long and hard, and it's probably just practical information more than anything else. The main thing being, how not to procrastinate. It's something that we all do and something that I still wish I knew the answer to today. And I know that I'm not alone because a recent study showed that between 80 to 95% of college students said that they procrastinated on a regular basis, particularly when it came to completing assignments and coursework. So procrastination is the avoidance of doing a task that needs to be accomplished by a certain deadline. It's putting off activities that are planned or scheduled for activities of lesser importance. And we've all been there, right? You have an essay or an exam to revise for, and all of a sudden, things that shouldn't be a priority gain all of your attention. And so for some people, these aren't bad things, but they're just not what you should be doing. So for some people, it's lots of exercise. You could completely clean and tidy your whole room. Your bookshelf looks immaculate. You could go for coffee with friends. Or if you're like me, you could spend hours online doing a BuzzFeed quiz to tell you which pizza topping most reflects your personality and then do it like nine more times because you're really offended that you got margarita and you have a big existential crisis. But I don't think that this is unique to students. It's not unique to essay deadlines or exams. We all are prone to distraction. Distraction is a key feature of the human condition. And reflecting on this a bit more, I realized that one of the key things that God has taught me over the past seven years is about priorities. Not just with the work that I produce, but in all areas of my life. And this is something that God is still teaching me. He's still patiently teaching me it because we have a patient God. So I'm probably not the best person to tell you about priorities. But from what God has been teaching me, I know that God's word can. So the story of Mary and Martha is probably one that you're familiar with. I always feel, though, that Martha gets a really hard time. I empathize with her a bit for two reasons. Firstly, at the beginning of the story, we are told that it's Martha who invites Jesus into her home. She's put it as this person that we shouldn't be like, but at the very beginning of the story, she invites Jesus in. She wants Jesus to be there. And secondly, Jesus was traveling with his disciples. I think sometimes we forget that when Jesus invited, uh, Martha invited Jesus in, she would have had to invite those that were traveling with him. And the thought of this makes me panic because not only would she have invited them in, but as was customary at the time, she would have had to provide them with hospitality and probably some sort of meal. And the thought of entertaining all those people in my little house in Belfast really makes me panic. But it would have been a hundred times worse for Martha because she couldn't have juked down to Iceland and got like a spread of mini Kievs and like profiteroles. No, it would have been hard work. So you can kind of understand why she would have been frustrated with Mary. <coughs> 
Some of you, however, are probably less panicked at that prospect because you have the gift of hospitality. Some people in true Presbyterian style have already worked out how many Mars bar and apple sandwiches and 15s that they would have to make to provide for Jesus and his disciples. And this isn't a bad thing because hospitality is fantastic. It's a gift. And we shouldn't read this passage as something that warns against hospitality. Because in Luke 10, um, Jesus sends out the 72. And as part of this, he says that they're going to have to rely on the hospitality of the people that they meet. And then we hear of the Good Samaritan, which is probably one of the best remembered stories about countercultural hospitality and love that we're called to show to our neighbour. So this isn't a warning against hospitality. Hospitality is a part of God's God's good news and God's kingdom. Looking more broadly at the Gospel of Luke, Jesus is continually emphasising God's love and his kingdom are a reversal of our social values. And with this in mind, lots of scholars tend to focus on the fact that Mary, who sits at Jesus' feet, is a woman. Now, to sit at Jesus' feet was to be a pupil or a disciple. In Acts, Paul says he was brought up at the feet of Gamaliel, who was a Pharisee and teacher of Jewish law, and this meant that he was taught by him. Mark Sayers explains that at this time and in this context, women weren't equal participants. People were encouraged to teach their sons the Jewish law, but uh, but they weren't encouraged to teach their daughters the Torah. And some traditions even suggest that it was a waste of time to teach um, your daughters the Torah. This act of sitting at Jesus' feet would have been shocking and countercultural. But we kind of get this now. We, we understand that Jesus' interactions with women weren't the same as they would be viewed today. And sometimes we have to understand the context of a passage. Things that we read in Scripture seem um, so strange to us today. They don't look like the way we understand the world. But the thing I actually find most striking about this pa- passage when I read it is that Martha doesn't seem weird at all. She doesn't seem like she's removed from us. She doesn't seem like she's in a completely different culture or context. It doesn't seem like 2,000 years separate us. I think if Martha was here today in Belfast, in any church, she would fit right in. If Martha was my friend, I probably wouldn't call her out on what she was doing. So much of what she's doing here, I see in my own life too. Why? Because we are distracted. Distraction and busyness are so normalized and we valorize overwork to the point of exhaustion. Is your life spent rushing from one place to another, rushing from one thing to another? Do you overcommit and then are never fully present? I can answer yes to both of those questions. And even when we show up, we're not fully there. We're what I like to term crispy cream donuts because we are completely glazed over. So we're familiar with distraction, and in this passage we're told that Martha is distracted. But the original Greek translation of this word is peri espato. I had, <laughs> that's not how you pronounce it at all. I said to Dave about nine times before, you, you must know Greek, how do you pronounce this? Um, wouldn't have worked really any in my Korean accent. But the point of this is, this word's original translation means to be cumbered or drawn away, or drawn in many dire- directions. Some things that draw us away are easy to spot, so we can call out sin, jealousy, greed, 
lust, anger. Yeah, those things are easy to call out in our lives. Those distractions are easy to see. But sometimes other things that pull us away are less obvious. Things that are, in and of themselves, perfectly fine. Jobs, relationships, hobbies, even ministries. The harsh reality is that these things are good, but they're not Jesus. They're not bad, but they're not Jesus. They're not the worst, but they're not Jesus. Jesus tells us that only one thing is needed. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you're worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. Jesus has a purpose for our lives. He gives us gifts and talents, and these are good to use to serve others. But if he isn't the main thing in our lives, what's the point? If all else doesn't flow from a relationship with him, then we become dry and we, run, we become anxious and troubled. It distorts our relationship with God, as you can see, Lord, don't you care? Our relationship with ourselves, we become anxious and troubled, but it damages our relationships with other people, as we can see from the interaction between Mary and Martha. Danny Silk has written a number of Christian books on relationships and how followers of Jesus should interact with each other, with their family, their friends, and their loved ones. In one of his books, he writes about powerless people. He says, the defining driving force of a powerless person is anxiety. Life is scary when you're powerless. He continues, they need other people to share their power with them because they don't have any of their own. They approach relationships like consumers and blame the messes they've made on other people. If we pull ourselves in different directions, entangle ourselves in distraction, we will become powerless people. And if we rely on other people for our power, we're only going to be let down. There is no one who gives power like Jesus. Ephesians 1 tells us that God's incomparably great power for those that believe is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. Wow. If God is able to provide me with the same strength that raised Christ from the dead, then why should I settle and look to other people or other things? Why would I settle for anything less than this kind of power? Ironically, though, distraction only serves to pull us in different directions, um, but so much of why we entertain it is about control. <clears throat> For most of us, it's not that we don't want Jesus. We do. We're like Martha. We invite Jesus in. We want him in our lives, and we want him to be present. But there's other parts of our lives that we value so much, we're scared to lose them, or we're worried that they'll change. Jesus is a priority, but he shares the top spot with other things. I'm reading a great book um, <clears throat> with Hannah and Georgia May at the minute for Georgia May's internship, and it's by Tozer. It's a classic. You've probably heard of it. It's called The Pursuit of God. Really good book. Would recommend to your friend. But I feel that Tozer really hits the nail on the head when he talks about this. He says, there is little that we need other than God himself. The evil habit of seeking God and effectively prevents us from finding God in full revelation. In the end lies our greatest woe. 
If we omit the and, we shall soon find God, and in him we shall find that which we have all our lives been secretly longing. Jesus doesn't say, you need me and. He says only one thing is needed. So what do we do? What does this look like and how is it applied? So there's some obvious stuff, like the stuff that we know, like making time to be with Jesus, making time to spend time with him in prayer and in his word. But everyone's distraction is so different. It looks so different practically. But so much of this takes place in your head and your heart. Some questions that have really challenged me are, what do you think about more than you think about, what do you think about more than Jesus? What do you spend more of your time and energy on than Jesus? And to be honest, I really don't like the answers I have for myself. But when applying this as well, there's two things we can look to that Jesus says. And these things shouldn't go unnoticed. First is that we don't come away with guilt and condemnation because that's just as much of a distraction too. Jesus says, Martha, Martha. According to some scholars, this is um, conduplication, another word, doesn't work in Korean accent, a rhetorical advice used to indicate compassion or pity. You don't repeat a stranger's name like that, Martha, Martha. And in John 11, verse five, we are told, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister, and Lazarus. Jesus' challenge to pursue one thing comes from love, and our response should be the same. If Jesus is to be the main thing in our lives, then it shouldn't come from a place of obligation. It should come from a relationship and a knowledge that we are loved more than we can even fathom. Secondly, Jesus said, Mary has chosen what is better. She has chosen it. It's about choice. And this isn't like a one-off thing. It's hard. This is continual and daily. This is the little things and the big things. And it isn't always easy, but it's all that's needed. And the promise is it won't be taken away from us. Just as we close, I wanted to share this image. It might be familiar to some of you. I am an absolute nerd and I love watching antiques programs. And one day I was watching an antiques program and somebody was selling a duplication of this painting. And I thought, I really recognize that, where is it from? And I thought about it for ages and I realized it was the HMV logo. I have very fond memories of being down in HMV as a teen, listening to um, very questionable music. <laughs> My music changes. Taste has changed quite a lot, um, but this is where I knew it from, and I suddenly became really, really interested in the painting. And as I listened, I realized that the painting was painted in 1998, 1898, 1898, um, by a painter named Francis Broad. And it shows a dog and a phonograph. Now, this is my period of history, and I was really excited about this. A phonograph uh, was one of the first devices that you could record and listen to sound on. And Francis painted this painting, and um, after completing the painting, he thought the Edison Bell Phonographic Company might put it to work, that they might use it for their company. But it's rumored they turned down his offer and skeptically said, dogs don't listen to phonographs. 
It's also reported that at one point he tried to exhibit it at the Royal Academy, but again, without any success. Many advertising companies said no one would know what the dog was doing. Now we know that he eventually got lucky and he had to change the original phonograph to this gramophone and it was used by a gramophone company. But as well as changing the instrument that the dog was listening to, he also changed the name of the painting. This painting originally had the very exciting name of Dog Looking At and Listening to Phonograph. <laughs> but Francis decided to change the name of the painting to His Master's Voice. And the company that took on the logo decided to take the name as well. HMV, His Master's Voice. I know, I thought this year when I first heard it, how exciting. But looking at it, this doesn't really make sense. We need to know the story behind it. This dog did not belong to Francis. It belonged to his brother, Mark. And a couple of years before he painted this painting, Mark died. And Mark left Francis three things. This dog named Nipper, a phonograph, and some recordings of his voice. And this painting isn't of a dog listening to a phonograph. It's a dog listening to his master's voice. Dogs don't listen to phonographs. No one would know what the dog was doing. People didn't get it because they didn't get the story, and they didn't hear what he was hearing, and they didn't get the relationship. Jesus says only one thing is needed, and it will not be taken from you. We follow a living God who communicates with us, not an inanimate object. There's a difference, right? But we are invited to sit at the Lord's feet. When so many things try and draw us away and distract us, we are called to listen to our master's voice. And most people aren't going to understand that. Dogs don't listen to phonographs. People don't listen to their master's voice when there's 101 things going on around them. But they probably don't get the relationship either. They don't get the bigger story. A call to one thing comes with a challenge and questioning. It's a call that looks strange from the outside looking in. But we are confident in the promise that it is better. It's the only thing that is needed and it won't be taken away from us.